What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And today we're going to be talking about science denial, but in a little bit different of an aspect. So today my guests are actually two, two guests, Gail Sinatra and Barbara Hofer. So they wrote the book, Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. So as many of you know, who have been around for a minute. We've talked about science denial a few times and just, you know, what people are getting, you know, misinformed about, why they fall for it, all these other things. But there's actually some deeper psychology behind it. And that's what Barbara and Gail specialize in and write about. And they've been studying this for years. And this is a great conversation. Their book is fantastic. I read a ton of books on science denial, just trying to understand it, trying to understand why people fall for conspiracy theories and all that. And a lot of these books, they like kind of touch on the psychology of it. But I love this book because it dives deep into some of that psychology. So I'm super glad they were able to come on and chat about it. So I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Make sure you head down to the description. The book is out now. So follow Gail and Barbara over on Twitter. Grab a copy of their book. All right. And while you're down in the description, make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Barbara and Gail about their new book on science denial. All right. Good morning, Gail and Barbara. How are you both doing today? Well, thank you. Thanks Great. For it's a pleasure me. to be here with you, Chris. Absolutely. And I love the book. It's such a relevant topic right now. We're going to be talking about the wonderful world of science denial. So for, for those who have yet to introduce or be introduced to both of you wonderful ladies, uh, can you go ahead and introduce yourself, your background and all that kind of good stuff? We'll, we'll start with you, Barbara. Um, I'm Barbara Hofer. I am a professor emerita at the at Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont, where I have taught in the psych department for a number of years and done research on a wide range of topics, including the public understanding of science. And I'm a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Uh, sure. Uh, Gail Sinatra. I'm the Stephen H. Crocker Chair of Psychology and Education at the Rossier School of Education, the University of Southern California here in sunny Los Angeles. My research agenda is uh, STEM learning in general, mm -hmm. and obviously public understanding of science in particular. And I'm a fellow of the uh, APA, American Psychological Association, where I am the chair of the Climate Change Task Force. Mm. And, and maybe that's why I love the book so much, because I'm a big psychology nerd. I'm into all that. And I'm trying to understand, like, how do people believe these weird things? And I'm just fascinated with human behavior and all that. So for me personally, I've, I've been interested in this, you know, this topic for a while, like long before COVID. COVID's like the main topic right now. But, you know, uh, for me personally, you know, when my son was born, uh, his mom and I, because she, she worked with kids with autism for a very long time. And yeah, so like when it was time to get him vaccinated, like I didn't know she was like hearing all this stuff from the parents and everything. So I got really into this. And then, you know, eventually 
and we did get him vaccinated, by the way. But eventually, like, I just started realizing how many statistics and science, like every every other day you have a news story that's like, hey, chocolate cures cancer. And if you drink like a bottle of wine, you'll live 12 years. And I'm like, not all of this could be correct. So I started reading books on just how to understand science when you're not a scientist. So yeah. for, for both of you, when you when you were inspired to write this, was was it COVID that sparked it or have you two been working on this for a while how did how did it get inspired so <laughs> it's a really good question we've been working on this a long time mm. both of us have done research on public understanding of science and issues around this for several decades and we began talking to each other probably 20 or so years ago longer than that 25 years ago i don't know a long time ago and realizing that we were doing research on similar things initially we were both interested in how it was that people doubted evolution how is it that this broad explanatory theory that we could not live without in science was um, something that people had a hard time understanding? Mm -hmm. And there were many other topics that we both worked on and we began to think about how to write together. We happened to be at a wonderful conference organized by the National Science Foundation and the German equivalent that was held in New York near the United Nations, bringing people together in the public understanding of science, small invitational working conference. Out of mm -hmm. that, we wrote several peer review articles, but then began to realize that we didn't want to just speak to other psychologists. We really wanted to talk to a much broader public. We mm -hmm. began working on the book a few years ago, very much pre-COVID. I don't think it ever occurred to us that by the time the book came out, that we would, we would be in a place where many, many people are denying to the grave that they are hooked up to ventilators, denying that the very <laughs> disease that's killing them even exists. And that's just a horrifying place to be. I, I, it's just so disturbing. And so the need for this book became ever more apparent to us as we were writing that mm -hmm. we really need to help people understand why is it that people deny, doubt, resist science, mm -hmm. that there are all these various ways in which people are troubled by the findings they see and push back against them. And we're trying hard to offer psychological explanations as well as to help people understand what is it they can do. Yeah. So with, with both of you working on this, you know, just for, for years now, you've, you've seen a lot, right? So like, it was, it was like, you know, uh, you know, evolution and got climate change and everything. And, you know, now obviously there's COVID, but here, here's something that I've been trying to figure out. So I only really got into politics. I'm 36 years old. I got into it in 2016. I'm like, okay, what the hell's going on? Time to figure out, you know, why people believe things and, you know, vote a certain way and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, over these years, like how, how much has like the polarization become part of this? Like there's a conversation I'm regularly having. Like it seems like we're, we're seeing that, you know, the tribalism of it all and the my side bias and, you know, just here's what my side believes. And that's yeah. why I'm going to go to the grave. Like I would rather, I would rather die and go to the grave with this identity than admitting and it, anything else. And you have a whole chapter on biases and everything, but I'm curious since you two have been in the game for so long, how much has like the, the politics of it all increased the issue? Well, Chris, I, do think it's astounding how much science has become politicized and polarized. If you look back, um, Richard Nixon started the EPA. Mm -hmm. Republicans uh, supported science as a way to be internationally competitive and economically competitive. 
And science has always been an economic engine. So it is odd that it has become so polarized. And I would suggest that, you know, politicians and others who are trying to divide us have used science as a wedge issue. And not just politicians, but we see with uh, Naomi Oreskes and her colleagues work Mm -hmm. on Merchants of Doubt that also corporations, famously tobacco, and big oil have tried to mislead the public about the dangers of smoking mm-hmm. or the effect of fossil fuels on enhancing climate change. So um, there have been agents of polarization that have used science as a wedge issue. And we feel that's uh, most unfortunate. And we have seen over this last year how unfortunate it is for those, as Barbara mentioned, who are denying to the grave. Yeah. And and you're so right about the tribal identity part mm -hmm. of it. I mean, we are all tribal creatures and that has been fomented by social media. I think the Facebook hearings in the past week have just been fascinating in this regard Mm -hmm. of looking at the degree to which people get their information from like-minded people. And they're being pulled down these rabbit holes of information that are so false and erroneous and troubling. And yet, because their tribe believes it, they're clinging to those beliefs, even when they're terribly harmful. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the Facebook hearings because this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Like I, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago just about misinformation and I try to get down to the root of it all. I'm like, OK, is it the misinformation or is it like I like me and both of you? I'm sure you get smacked with misinformation on a regular basis. Right. But. You know, there are people who are trying to like immunize themselves to all the nonsense. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I come across a bit like, gee, that sounds a little weird. Let me double check and things like that. So anyways, when we're talking about the Facebook here, it's the misinformation and how these platforms play into polarization, right? I, I'm always thinking, I'm like, okay, well, you know, uh, we're, we're in a, you know, country run by capitalism. There's all these incentives to make money, make profit, keep people on these platforms. And I come from a social media background, right? So, and a marketing background. So I, I get that. So anyways, what I'm trying to figure out, here's a question I've been grappling with. And, it, you know, it, it, it's, there might be a few different ways to tackle this, but I'm always wondering, like, do people care about the truth, right? Like, how much do people actually care? Like, if we wiped away, you know, uh, uh, Facebook playing into the misinformation, they're still going to get the misinformation from uh, their favorite news outlets, right? They're going to get it from their neighbors who are hearing it from their friends and everything like that. Last last night at the time of recording this, John Oliver actually did uh, an episode on misinformation. Did you two catch that? Oh, I'm not yet. Yeah, and it it talks about it on a more global issue. So so I'm looking at it, and I was even watching the episode. I'm like, how much is it really the platforms, or is it us? Like, you you two talk about in the book how we have to teach our kids, and that's where I'm like, okay, well, hopefully my son and that generation could be better. But do people care about the truth? You know what I mean? If I give them the truth, will they even care, or are they going to go to the grave being like, well, my side believes that this is false, so I'm going to die. You know what I mean? Well, certainly, uh, I'm going to let Barbara jump in on the epistemology issues since that's (laughs) her um, expertise of research. But I would say that we have to really talk about, um, you know, what people consider to be the truth. Mm. And that's the the challenge here. So um, as we saw in John Oliver's episode about platforms spreading misinformation, 
if it's your only source of information, you think you are getting the truth. So I, I wouldn't suggest that people don't care at all about the truth. It's that how they uh, understand the truth depends on where they're getting their information. And of course, they trust information coming from trusted sources mm -hmm. the most. And that's why that uh, yeah. episode was so, so troubling. It showed, um, if, if any of your listeners missed it, it showed that while uh, Facebook and other social media platforms are, are doing some things to try and stop the spread of misinformation, they are not as aggressive in other languages. And they specifically yeah. called out, um, for example, WhatsApp, which is used as a news source in other countries who can't get access to Facebook or Twitter. And um, so it's really just their, their grandma and their aunt sharing stories. And so, of course, people believe them if they come from family, trusted family members. But that's unfortunate because they can't do the kinds of fact-checking that yeah. we recommend. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that's happened is people talk about us living in a post-truth era now. And that's very convenient for some authoritarian politicians in particular. <laughs> you know, they can play the game of, well, who knows what truth is? Um, just trust me, truth is what I tell you and everything else is fake news. I mean, that that leads people into falling into this belief-based attitude of just, I believe in this person. I'm going to trust what they tell me. I'm not going to question it. And that works for authoritarian politicians really well. Let's make mm -hmm. it clear that we don't know what truth is anymore, but just trust me. Yeah. So I guess the other thing that I'm regularly thinking about too is I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, like the work of like Roy ba Baumeister and like ego sure. depletion and stuff. Right. Yeah. So uh, on a daily basis, we're making a bajillion decisions, right? What am I going to wear? What time should I do this? Uh, right before this call, I was organizing my calendar for the day. You know, I was talking with my son this morning. I was talking about just a bajillion things, right? It takes far less cognitive effort for me to just have one source, you know, my, my family member, my uncle, you know, whoever it is, and just get that information, right? I don't have the time, you know, not me, I, I take the time, but people feel like they don't have the time to go research this. It takes far less cognitive effort to just get the information from someplace. Maybe it's, maybe it's their favorite news outlet where, whether it's yeah. Fox news, CNN, you know? So I guess, you know, what I'm getting at is when I think about that aspect of it, where, where is the, where is the solution? Because we're all overloaded with making all these decisions on a daily basis. And to dedicate time to fact check and research, it takes a lot. So where, where, where do we start tackling that issue? Well, I, you know, I think one uh, major issue to think about is that just what you've said, psychologists talk about it as cognitive misers, you know, mm. that each of us is always trying to conserve cognitive energy. Just as you said, you've got to make all these decisions on a daily basis. So how do you conserve your energy? And we talk in the book about Daniel Kahneman's work, the mm. Nobel Prize winning psychologist who talks about system one and system two thinking. So you've got a system one operating for you that is that quick, intuitive response that you make to decisions like the ones you just described. You know, so you're not putting a lot of effort into those. But system two thinking is the rational analytic side of ourselves that takes a little more time. It's more effortful. We have to slow down. And I think the real challenge is to help people learn when to do that. 
no Man. one would argue, including Kahneman, that system two should be employed all the time. Yeah. System one has its uses and it does save cognitive energy. But we really do want to have people think about before they take ivermectin to cure COVID or prevent COVID or whatever they think they're doing with it or inject bleach or whatever they've heard on their favorite news channel, that they stop and think and slow down and try to triangulate the information, look for it somewhere else. And Gail and her colleagues have a lot of ideas about how to do that. Lay them on me, Gail. What have you, what are you guys been looking into? Well, um, Barbara's right. You can't possibly employ that kind of thoughtful decision-making about everything that you do all day long. You'd be exhausted by the end of the day. So you have to pick and choose where you're going to spend your cognitive resources. So um, if you want to know where the best you know, Thai restaurant is in your neighborhood, that's something you should probably go on Facebook and look and see what your neighborhood group says about that and try out the restaurant that they suggest. But when you're trying to make really literally life and death decisions regarding whether to get vaccinated or whether to try these alternative non-proven um ways to treat COVID, that isn't something you should crowdsource. You can't really crowdsource science unless your crowd happens to be a bunch of infectious disease doctors. So I would suggest it's those decisions, the ones that Mm. really are critically important to the safety of yourself and your family and others, that you spend the time to do that kind of uh, sourcing that we talk about. Doug Lombardi and I have an article about that. We'd mm-hmm. be happy to share with you or any of your listeners. And we recommend that you stop, read the article carefully. Remember, sometimes people just share things without even um, yeah. reading them, which Twitter has tried to slow us down on by giving us that warning. Maybe you'd like to read this. Yeah. And open up another window, maybe even in incognito mode so your computer doesn't know what you've been searching for. And then do what we call lateral reading. In other mm. words, instead of reading a down list of, of uh, Google resources that pop up, which may not be reliable, they may just be the most popular, um, or they may be ones that have paid to be high on that Google page. Open mm-hmm. up another window, see if you can get other sources to confirm that information. And only after you have done that, uh, can you uh, consider sharing it with someone else? The last thing we suggest strongly in that article is to use your own thinking and reasoning about plausibility. Mm. An example would be people are saying uh, that the vaccine contains a microchip or can make you magnetic. And if you just stop and think for a few minutes, you'll realize there are no microchips small enough to put in a needle. Mm-hmm. And humans can be magnetic. And if you just uh, stop and use some uh, rational thought for a minute, I think instead of jumping on a crowdsourced bandwagon of information, you might realize that that seems unlikely and then do a little bit more investigation of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And there, there's this idea because it's, it's interesting. Like if, if you get into a conversation with someone who believes these things, They'll, they'll start coming out like, you know, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I'd be like, oh, there's no chips small enough that you know about, you know, and all these other things and, and stuff like that. But it's, you know, I, I 1000% agree, like, you know, especially with like Kahneman's work and everything. And like, like, uh, and you mentioned like, you know, if we're looking for a restaurant, like 
how big are these decisions? For example, when it came to getting my son vaccinated, like that's a bigger decision. But even now, like even like science aside, there's so many policy issues and everything. And there's like these debates around like critical race theory being taught in schools and so many things. I've, I've had, you know, some authors on different sides of those debates come on and everything. But something I'm always looking at is like, how big of an issue is this? How does this affect different communities and people and everything. And sometimes I'll get hit with something and it's a well-written article, it'll cite sources. And something I try to do, right? I take a step back and say, I am not making a decision on this yet. Like I'm in no rush. Like I have, we, we have all the time in the world, Like I don't have to decide right now. And, and then just, you know, probabilities. And I am not a math guy by any stretch of the imagination, but I try to read books on like, like I had Tim Clarkford on who had a book called The Data Detective. And, you know, uh, I have uh, someone coming on tomorrow where he, he has a chapter on data and stuff like that. But anyways, um, I, I look at probabilities, like, right? So like, for example, with the vaccine, okay? Like, side, there's, you know, people talk about the side effects and this and that. And, but like, when we look, we just crossed 700,000 deaths, like seven. 100,000 deaths just in the United States. And I feel like we could just, the rationality comes in what's like, okay, 700,000 people have died from this virus. How many people have died from the vaccine, right? Like, even if we're in this like tough, like situation, it's like, just look at those two numbers and be like, okay. Because I've had people say on Twitter, like, I know somebody who died. It's like, okay, well, even if you knew one person who died, there's 700,000. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and so like, do you think people have a hard time like comprehending like these numbers or wanting to look at the numbers? And because even still, like when you mentioned like the magnetism, we saw videos of people saying, look, and they would stick a spoon and would fall and just reality is gone. You know? <laughs> so, well, Chris, so we know as professors who've taught <laughs> statistics in our, in our research and in our classrooms that. Um, it is difficult for people to understand base rates. And that's what you're talking uh, about. You, it, no vaccine, in fact, no medical treatment is completely flawless and perfect and has no risk. But you must weigh the risk of getting the vaccine versus the risk of not getting the vaccine. It mm-hmm. is, it, neither one is risk-free. But if you look at the base rates, <laughs> which of course is something that people are challenged to understand, it is exactly as you say, um, the adverse reactions to the vaccine uh, are minimal compared to the threat of not getting vaccinated and having very adverse reactions like mm-hmm. dying from COVID. So you have to be able to look at those base rates. And in terms of probabilities, you know, if people were magnetized, we'd see, we'd be walking around seeing people stuck to cars and, yeah. and, and streetlights. <laughs> and we went to and we don't see that. So you have to also use um, just just some logic and reasoning too. Yeah. So I, I think my favorite chapter in the entire book was like talking about like kids. Like it just, it like, it slapped me in my head. Like my son is 12 years old. He's going on 13. And something I've just been trying to do since he was just young is like trying to teach him how to think, how to, how to go through yeah. the process of thinking and doing research. Um, for example, when he would have problems with his like Xbox when he was, you know, uh, you know, even a little bit younger, I'm like, well, why don't you look it up and see what people are saying on how to fix it? Right. But then just most recently, he's getting, he's in the process of getting braces. Right. And the dentist said like, oh, get the Invisalign or whatever. And he's like, oh, well, what about the metal one? And I told him, I said, 
go online, see what people's experiences are, weigh them out, weigh the pros and cons, see what you would like to do. All, all this other stuff. Anyway, anyway, like, but you two even talk about just kids doing research for a paper. There's a chance they might come across like, ridiculous information. Yeah. You talk about, yeah. you know, what the teacher says versus what's being said at home and all this stuff. So where do we start with our next generation? Is it schools? Is it parents? I know it's probably both, but if we're being realists, where should we like, do we need policies for schools or I don't know, do we need parenting classes? What do you, what do you think, <laughs> think is the best place to start? Well, I definitely think we have to teach sourcing strategies. As we just mentioned that uh, we have an article about that. And in the book, we talk about how to better source information. Mm -hmm. uh, if you a teacher asks students to um, find out whether dinosaurs and humans were contemporary, they can Google that. And, and unfortunately, what will happen is they'll find a lot of links to sources that say that they were. So the strategy of, quote, researching something online usually starts with Googling something and watching a Facebook uh, or YouTube video. And those are not reliable strategies for mm -hmm. finding reliable information. So as we mentioned, we need to teach sourcing. We need to teach sourcing to our teachers so they can help teach it to their students. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd refer your listeners to the News Literacy Project, which is doing exactly that. It's helping to provide resources for teachers for how to teach about fake news and reliable mm. information and how to find those differences um, online. So that's something that has to be incorporated into our curriculum. Um, mm. And Barbara, maybe you want to talk about going beyond digital literacy to algorithmic literacy. Yeah. So we, you know, we talk about both digital literacy, teaching kids how to do these searches and algorithmic literacy. So with digital literacy, often it's done a couple times in school and that's it. And it has to keep happening. It has to happen all the way through college. I was shocked by the inability of my very well-schooled college students to discern how to find a reliable website to ferret out when there were sponsors, when there was a hidden agenda, not so hidden if they dug a little deeper and figured out who the source was, like the Creation Museum trying to persuade you that dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time. And even really good college students, what they could most remember from high school is that .com was bad and .org was good. I yeah. mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's ludicrous. That's just not how it works. Creation Museum is .org, by the way. So trying to to help them learn all of that is important. But the the Pew Research Center, who did a wonderful report on algorithms and how little people actually know about how they work, is advocating that we need to teach algorithmic literacy as well. Mm. We need to teach people about this basic organizing principle of digital life that returns to us the kinds of things that we liked, valued, um, forwarded to somebody else, that we're going to get more of same. And I think anybody who's been listening to the Facebook hearings is getting a pretty good education in that too, as is Congress. I mean, there's been some good commentary lately on how Congress is now beginning to understand what algorithms are, even though mm -hmm. many people didn't initially. But they are, people learn how to game algorithms as well. And algorithms underlie not only our Google searches, but obviously what Netflix shows they want us to watch next mm -hmm. or what books we should read on Amazon or who we ought to date but they are mm -hmm. proprietary information. They're not public. We don't know what all feeds into that, although we're learning some about Facebook, that they 
they valued the things that uh, were emotional in content, that were disturbing, that kept people looking longer and kept them looking at ads and monetized mm -hmm. it. And that is that is really problematic. We have to do much more education. And I, I was thinking about your question, which is a really good one in terms of whether this is parents or schools. And it really is both because mm -hmm. I think your wonderful examples of working with your son to help him figure out how to find information or more. That happens in every family, I think, you know, that, that kids are at home doing a lot of this looking stuff up. They need to have somebody over their shoulder a good part of that time. Helping them think aloud about, well, what, you know, why did you pick that one to read and what, what interests you about that? And let's look at what the source is. Let's read the little about column there, or let's look this organization up somewhere else mm -hmm. and see whether they have some hidden agenda or not. Because I think yeah. we, we have to really, in the, in the time that we're in right now, not only help people think about why is it that people believe this crazy stuff, but who is it that wants them to believe yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't stress that enough. Whenever, you know, whenever I, I come across anything and I try to teach people about that and my son, like who, who wants them to believe this? Like, yeah. does the person giving you information have any possible incentive, any possible incentive at yeah. all? Like, you know, it's not always that it's going to mean that it's misinformation, but it's something to factor in. Like, do they gain something? And I think a great example, which is something that, you know, I, I'm sure you two are sh shocked by as well. Like knowing, knowing people are fully vaccinated, but they're telling their audiences all the dangers of the vaccine. Like that makes my yeah. brain want to explode. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it, it's nuts, but also just yeah, like checking the sources, everything. So something else that you two might be interested uh, in something that we did with my son. So right before the pandemic hit, we went down to LA and we took my son to the Scientology Museum of, uh, of Psychiatry. And that place is a hot mess. And, you know, if you're just an average person and you just, you know, walk in there, you'll see all these terrible things about psychology, psychiatry, all the crazy torture methods that they used to do, which is real, right? These are things they used to do, but also doctors used to use bloodletting, but that doesn't mean I can't trust my physicians now. But anyways, I brought my son there, but I, I think it's also important that we as parents educate ourselves, right? Like I read an insane amount of books, but it's so I can better answer questions for my son. And if I don't know the answers, we try to look it up, but here's an interesting question for both of you. Like when we're talking about the algorithmic literacy, right? I, I feel like sometimes like I, I had this different perspective because I come, I come from digital marketing, right? Ah, I've yeah. been on the other side, right? Most, the majority of people are on Facebook, they're on Google or whatever, and they're just seeing results. I've been on the backside managing ad yeah, campaigns. And, yeah. and I think people would be really shocked if you wouldn't, if you, if people just took like $5 and made a Facebook ad and you don't even have to like really do it. You could just go through the process. If you could see how specifically you could target people, I think yeah. people would be shocked. Like, yeah. do you know, do you know, I don't know, maybe you two teach about it. Like, do you teach about what's on the other end for like marketers and salespeople? Because like when we talk about gaming the algorithm, like there's people paying to get in front of the right people. Yeah. Like you can, yeah. you can specify, like, I want people who make this type of money. Yeah. I think yeah. they were, they removed the political aspect of it, but there's still so much that you could target. So is that being taught anywhere? Oh, not that much. I mean, mm. I invented a course about 10 years ago called psychology and emerging technology. 
Mm. And so I teach it in there because we do a lot of thinking about how does this happen and what should we know about it and thinking about algorithmic literacy. But the students, again, really bright college students are often shocked to find out that the top 10 hits on Google are not the ones that are most reliable, most authoritative, most substantiated. They have no idea how concocted those are and how people like you, when you were in marketing, learned to game the system to get something to come up there fast. I mean, there are all kinds of, not that Google publishes their algorithm, but you can figure it out. You can figure out what are some of the components that get you to be up at the top of the list. But they were um, typically, and I did research on this where we interviewed kids as well, typically people thought, well, the top 10 must be the best. Yeah. And they often don't even go to the second page. Yeah. (laughs) What's interesting about that, Chris, with a marketing background is years ago, before the internet, you might watch a television ad or see a newspaper or magazine ad for, let's say, a car, and there's a beautiful woman sitting there on the car. I think people could put that together as, Mm. oh, you know, they're drawing my attention to this car ad. And I think they could a little bit suss out that, you know, it's, it's not about the the beautiful woman, it's about the car. Mm -hmm. But what Barbara's describing with these algorithms, they're all hidden. They're all hidden. The mechanism that is being used to draw your attention is so hidden. It's not the beautiful woman sitting on the hood of the car. It's It's a hidden algorithm. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is so misleading to people is there, it's not as obvious how they're being drawn down these rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. It because aside from this, you know, the marketing, like I've been in content marketing for years and you know, I was trained in search engine optimization, how to use keywords. Yes. What are people yeah. typing yeah. into Google? I cannot tell yeah. you, like personally, as somebody from that realm, I think Google sucks, right? <laughs> like it takes me so long to find what I'm looking for because I'm like, you know, like I'm just trying to find books on specific topics and I just get these garbage, like top five lists. I'm like, get out of my face. Like I, I hate Google and I have to like, uh, you know, I usually have to ask on Twitter or something if I want to find something from actual people, you know? Um, but have you tried to find anything on Amazon lately? (laughs) Oh boy. Well, that's the other. So check this out. So, uh, I do my own self-publishing. I've self-published, uh, five books, like on mental health, addiction, recovery, and stuff like that. And I'm learning more about it now because I'm working on some yeah. other stuff, self-plug. Um, but yeah, the algorithm, the, the, the Amazon one, it's brutal, but that's one of the reasons Jeff Bezos can, you know, fly a rocket ship, oh, you yeah. know, five yeah, feet above yeah. space. <laughs> but here, here's something that I think you two could help me with. So, you know, speaking of my writing, so I come from a family of educators, like my grandma, she was a special education teacher for like 30 plus years. My mom, she's a psychology professor. And I, I love, even though I, I'm, I've never gone into teaching, I love to teach as well, right? That's one of the reasons I have this podcast. It's one of the reasons I write. I try to take this information that I feel is important and get it out to the world. So something I feel like I struggle with, like just talking about the marketing aspect and everything is the curse of knowledge. So do you have any advice for someone like me, right? Like I've read 310 books this year, I think so far. And like when I hear about the algorithms, like when I watch like like the the, the Facebook hearings, right? Like when she's mm-hmm. talking about this, I'm like, no, duh. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I feel like I pass a lot of, a lot of topics because I feel everybody knows this already, right? So how, how do you two ladies, as you're teaching, as you're educated, even making a curriculum, 
how do you how do you figure out like oh no i don't think people know about this versus what they already know because i think i'm afraid of being condescending right like i don't want to like tell them something like like oh can you tell an algorithm works even though that's something they don't know about so I, i would love to hear from both of you on how you how you balance that out well, I think that's one of the challenges with the vaccine vaccination communications is that uh, some people have been condescending. Mm. And I think that some people have very legitimate concerns that they just need answers to. So an example would be my niece had heard from a Facebook friend that the vaccines cause infertility. So rather than just laughing at her and and saying that silly, you know, we simply told her that wasn't true, but she should talk to her doctor and make sure that that, that isn't true. So, you know, referring her to someone that she trusted, some, someone that was knowledgeable, you know, people just have questions. And if we dismiss those questions because we think they're silly yeah. or condescend to them, that's a really good way to turn them off. And we do see people very offended by that and kind of doubling down on their misinformation, strength of belief when contradicted. So mm. that isn't a great strategy. So we would recommend that you listen to their concerns because to them, they're real concerns mm-hmm. and try to refer them to better information and be less judgmental about the fact they had this concern. Mm. And I, I think, you know, back to everything you know about algorithms already, I wouldn't hesitate to teach that to anybody. I mean, what the research says right now is that very few people are aware of it. They don't understand this hidden hand that's going on behind the scenes and in what way they might be being manipulated to see certain kinds of things more than others. Mm -hmm. And often people are surprised when they find that out. And I think the, again, the Facebook hearings have made it really clear that what we really need is more transparency around this. It's algorithms aren't going away. They're going to be used forever. So we need to figure out, could they be more transparent and could they foster more civic values more honesty, more truthfulness, more veracity. And I think that's um, the point that is being made in the Facebook hearings now, too. When you're talking about a company that makes billions of dollars a year, they have the resources to reshape this. They have the resources to monitor the kinds of things that are going on and to steer people towards more positive, more accurate information rather than just towards whatever feels emotional and hot and worth sharing with someone else. And I think we um, we talk in the book a lot about individual solutions because we're looking at the psychology of this and what individuals can do. But we also care a lot about these big solutions and what big tech can do. And one of our uh, favorite examples is the way in which both Twitter and Pinterest in 2019, pre-COVID, in this case, it was childhood vaccinations like you talked about. But they got concerned about the fact that a lot of anti-vax information was circulating on their websites, particularly among mothers who were trying to persuade other people not to vaccinate their kids. And what they did was put a stop to it, basically, by um, figuring out an algorithm so that anytime somebody searched for anti-vax information, what they got was a paragraph with a listing of where to go for accurate information. So it led them immediately to the World Health Organization, the American Pediatric Academy, and the CDC. So Mm. that could be done in so many cases. It's not that hard to figure out how these algorithms could work in the favor of more productive, democratic, scientific, evidence-based ideals. 
Yeah. I, uh, you know, um, a few, no, this is probably six months ago, at least. Uh, I don't know if you two saw, but Twitter implemented something called Birdwatch, right? And I was like, oh, this is interesting. So it's it's kind of like a crowdsourced way to fact check. And I, I, it feels like they have a bigger plan that we don't know about yet, but I signed up for it. I haven't really been doing it, but sometimes I just check in on it. But anyways, for those who don't know, like it'll say Birdwatch and, you know, it'll say like, people can leave comments about maybe this is not good information or you can even put like, Hey, this is like satirical, you know? And I'm like, okay, I guess that's good. Even though I, I would hope most people would know that, but you've seen people like share onion articles as if they're like real. Um, but yeah, I'm always thinking about that when, cause there's a lot of conversations, especially right now around the Facebook areas with regulation. Right. And I'm always wondering how much, you know, what what can be done? What's a solution? And I type a lot of people and they don't seem to have many answers. And like one of the things is, you know, I blew up on YouTube, right? I was getting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views and stuff like that. And something I learned just being on that end of a creator is that YouTube, they're getting, I don't know the exact number, but they're getting like thousands of hours of content uploaded X amount of minutes, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. I'm sitting there thinking like they cannot employ enough yeah. people to keep up with that so then we think about facebook we think about whatsapp we think about twitter and all that i'm just like okay what's realistic but as you were two were talking like i think one regulation that would be kind of nifty would be once you register an account you have to go through like a training where they say hey here's how our algorithms work like that's the transparency and you have to go through like hours of training just to even get on the platform what do you guys think about that you think what are the potential issues there I don't know. I think uh, it's not a bad idea, but I'm not sure whether it would be um, effective or not. But I'm an education professor, so I'm always going to be <laughs> open to anything that that uh, is going to going to teach uh, information. But I think a bit a better strategy is what we just saw last week is demonetizing misinformation. Mm. So we saw last week that some of the platforms are finally putting some limits on advertising dollars uh, connected to misinformation. So they're starting to tear that apart. And that mm. to me would be a far bigger effective solution is to um, limit or hopefully completely eliminate the monetization of the misinformation by limiting ads or eliminating ads for known misinformation. That would be to me more mm. effective. I mean, and I think that the danger of a one-time training is that Facebook will say they're off the hook now. Well, uh, you know, we gave yeah. people the information about how we do this, and now it's up to them to use it wisely. And I think what's being argued before Congress now is it's really their obligation mm -hmm. to to create algorithms that take us in a healthier direction. And you're concerned about the money. I, I just don't buy it. I mean, the money is there. The staff are there. The, the shocking number of... I think I think Facebook employs something like 40,000 engineers alone. Mm. You know, it's a phenomenal workforce with huge profits every year, certainly some of which could be used in this manner. Yeah, yeah. And it does seem like, I, I, I guess my concern is putting too much faith in algorithms. But I do think, like, like you're talking about, they, they have so many, uh, you know, engineers and stuff. And with the amount of money that people like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff yeah. Bezos, all these people have, it's like, hey, like it's it's like yeah. incentivizing them to put the resource, like, hey, we're trying to figure this yeah. out, focus on yeah. this, because 
Here's a situation that I personally had, which kind of makes me wonder about censorship and regulation and just the algorithms in general was last year before YouTube, it was right before YouTube cracked down on QAnon uh, on there. There was a video uh, from one of the big QAnon channels with all this like COVID misinformation, right? Just a ton of misinformation, like saying, you know, that the government's trying to control you by telling you to wear a mask, all this stuff. Anyways, I made a video debunking QAnon, right? Their algorithm took down my video, left his video up. It took down my Ah. video. So on YouTube, you could do a manual appeal. Well, the thing is that these employees, I don't know if it's laziness. I don't know if they're overwhelmed. I don't know what it is, but they said, we stand by our decision. And I'm like, what? Like, what are you talking about? So it took me getting press attention. I was on the Young Turks to talk about it. Insider did an article about it. And all of that attention, YouTube reversed, right? So that's what- it took that persistence. Exactly. So that's what I get concerned about, like, how the algorithms are as is and how the employees are right now because they're making mistakes. And in this world where, you know, because I I look at people like yelling free speech, free speech, free speech. It's like, okay, but if your algorithm is taking down the science side of it, we have a big big problem. Yeah. Yeah. What we've seen is, again, they're making money from the spread of misinformation. So they Mm. may be less motivated to take down the misinformation. So, um, you know, we, we talk about how people don't necessarily know about the psychology of science denial that we're writing about in our book, but the designers of these platforms do know, you know, how compelling identity is and how likely you are to follow information shared by members of your identity group. They do know about the role of emotions in compelling someone to share information that isn't correct. They, they know a lot more, I think, than the average user of their platforms do Mm -hmm. about these psychological factors that lead people towards science, doubt, resistance, and denial that we're trying to share with the general public. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I've thought about this, like it's something to try to get out there. Uh, one aspect of marketing, since I'm a psychology nerd, I love the psychology aspect of marketing, but I try to use it for good rather than evil. Yeah. And I'm like, like, I'm thinking, how do I get this video or how do I get information about your book out there? How do I market that properly? You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm trying to Thank use you. it for good. <laughs> You're welcome. Cause there's so many important things, but it feels like the marketing dollars go towards yeah. The bad things. And we got to figure out a way to balance that out. But, you know, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're getting manipulated in different ways. Right. Yeah. And I think if people understood that, because even when it comes to consumerism, right, like yeah. one of my favorite things I heard uh, from a book was like the worst advertisement on earth would say, you're perfect the way you are. You don't need anything. You know what I mean? Like they have, every advertisement has to say you're missing something or you could be better and all that. But You know, when it comes to being manipulated, I think, you know, one of the last questions I've been dying to talk about too, and I I asked this of anybody talking about science denial is I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty liberal, progressive, you know, whatever. And my side, if you will, I think one of our things is we, we say we're the ones who believe in science. We are the science people, you guys over there, you're the science deniers, but 
if you kind of zoom in and look at some of the, the issues, you know, like there's the topic of like GMOs. I have Lee McIntyre on here talking about that. There's stuff like, uh, which I'm not as well versed about, like nuclear power and stuff, right? There's certain things where people on the left deny the science, then don't even get, you know, we don't have all yeah. the time in the world yeah. to get into the biological discussions going on right now against male, male and female. But anyways, when we go back to, when we circle back to politics, do you see science denial on both sides of po the political spectrum? And how do we make people acknowledge that they're kind of picking and choosing what science that they're, they want to trust? Well, I think one of the things we try to do in the book is not make it an us and them issue. We're really mm. looking at psychological explanations for how any of us can be susceptible to certain kinds of biased thinking. And your example of GMOs is a good one. I live in Vermont where uh, there has been enormous resistance to GMOs and a lot of concern about whether they're healthy to eat or not. And when the New York Times came out with that article in August, a Sunday cover story on the magazine about is it time to learn to love GMOs? A friend had just read the book and emailed me and said, I, I wouldn't have read this article the same way had I not read your book. I mm. was monitoring my own awareness, my own biases, and I was much more open-minded thinking about what the article was trying to present um, about things like golden rice and why it's important to be able to feed nations and other countries, feed people in other countries with rice that has been genetically modified to offer vitamin A. So anyway, she, I think it's a good example. We do know that there are high correlations between science denial and political beliefs. I mean, we know right now the vaccinations as a proxy for this. I mean, the number of people who are uh, Democratic who are vaccinated, the number of Republicans who are vaccinated, the more you adhered to Trump, the least likely you were to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's, you know, just disturbing to look at the degree to which that's been manipulated, obviously. Mm -hmm by political parties. And again, the nations that have done particularly well, and there was a story about Portugal in the news last week, are those that got politics out of the way. They really put the trust in science. They put the trust in scientists. They had scientists doing presentations. They even had military people doing mm -hmm. presentations. So trying to figure out how do you get the politicians out of the way and get people to speak to the public who are also trusted. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's become critical. But we've also not done a great job communicating science to the public. Uh, scientists are not necessarily trained to communicate about their yeah. work to the public. They're yeah. trained to communicate about their work to other scientists. So we definitely need to do a better job. We talk about this in our recommendations in the book, and we have recommendations for individuals and educators, uh, policymakers, and science scientists and science communicators about how they can communicate that better. You know, a good example is that over the course of the pandemic, the science has changed and evolved. So first mm -hmm. we were washing our groceries and then we were wearing masks and the public saw this as flip-flopping or yeah. deceit when it was really just the normal process of science. Uh, happening in front of our eyes, which normally it doesn't. Normally we just open a textbook and we read something that's sort of finished science. We were yeah. seeing science as it was evolving in real time. And so we have not done a great job communicating about the nature of science and that a strength of science is that it changes over time. Yeah, mm -hmm. And I don't think the public really understood that very well. And that led to some increased distrust. 
Yeah. And I think the New York Times had a piece a couple of weeks ago about the U.S. public getting a crash course in scientific uncertainty. And Mm. it talked about this as a problem of scientific literacy, that people expect certainty from science. They expect it to be communicated as definitive, known for sure, rather than understanding. We only know so much now, but here's what we know. And Mm -hmm. we're working on it. We're going to continue to chip away at this issue. And yet at the same time, there are people who don't understand when things are highly validated, why mm. it's important to respect that. So surprisingly in this hour, we have not talked about climate change, which is the, the passion that Gail and I both have as environmentalists mm. of really being concerned about the degree to which we have just wasted decades <laughs> because people challenged whether there were human causes to climate change. And we're now at a point with the IPCC report where we've got 234 scientists with 1,400 studies talking about why we know there are human causes. And we, we um, back to your question about the media and science communication, a lot of that was that doubt and that lack of certainty was fostered by Exxon, who hired a PR company to come in and try to persuade people that there was doubt. And then reporters ma- magnify that when they had, they had to feel for years, they felt that they had to go interview a climate denier every time they interviewed somebody who was a scientist talking about climate change. And mm-hmm. we have to get rid of that. We have a lot of recommendations and a lot of psychological studies behind that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the recommendations you two have in the book. And, you know, as you're talking about like with science communication, I've been reading more books on science writing, science journalism and things, because that's one of the goals of the podcast as well, is yeah. getting getting experts like yourself and many others and translating that to the average person. But yes. I, I have to let you two go in a second. But last question, I promise real quick. Who is the target audience for this book? Because I doubt someone's like, I'm a science denier. I'm going to grab this book. You know what I mean? Who, who, just real quick, who are, you t- who are you two hoping grabs a copy of this book? Well, we certainly hope that anyone who's concerned about science, doubt, denial, resistance, and confused by why that's happening and wants solutions for how to address it would pick up the book. We have specifically been seeing teachers who are um, enjoying the book and figuring out ways to use it in their K-12 and higher education classrooms. We're seeing individuals who have a cousin who's anti-vax or um, having difficulty with other aspects of science pick up the book and tell us that they found uh, some of the solutions in there useful for more productive conversations. Mm. I know scientists who are getting it uh, because they don't have a psychology background like you do. They don't understand why their work is not breaking through to better understanding in the general public. We hope they pick it up. So uh, policymakers who have to incorporate or make decisions about science into their decision-making and policymaking, we hope they pick it up for better communication with the public. So Mm. those are our target audiences, anyone who's interested. And while you might be right that a hardcore science denier is not going to pick it up, maybe their cousin will. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A good conversation rather than um, a negative one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things like the, no matter who picks it up, you're, you're providing more people with tools to talk with people too. And I think people better understanding the psychology and stuff, they can have better conversations with their cousin, their neighbor, their whoever. So I, I appreciate and love what you two are doing. I said it on Twitter a while back and I'm not over-exaggerating. 
I've read a lot of books on this topic. This one is definitely one of my favorites. So real Thank quick. Thank you. Absolutely. Where, where can you. people find both of you? Where's the best place? Is it Twitter? Do you guys have a website? Where's the best place to keep up with your work? And when you, when you come together and write another book? Uh, you can definitely find both of us on Twitter. Um, I'm at Gail Sinatra, G-A-L-E-S-I-N-A-T-R-A on Twitter. Um, and Barbara is at B-K Hofer, H-O-F-E-R on Twitter. You can also look us up at our universities. Mm. I'm at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Barbara is at Middlebury College in Vermont, emeritus status. And in terms of finding the book, you can find it on Amazon. And you can also ask your local bookstore to get a copy for you. We'd love to support local bookstores. And just this week, this is very exciting, Chris. Um, the audiobook is coming out. Ooh, and I love this so you're audio. A person who likes to listen to books on your way to work or on a walk every day. And I know some people say they don't read books anymore, they only listen to them. Then you'll be pleased to know the audiobook is being released this week. Beautiful. And I'll link all that in the description. Barbara, Gail, thank you so much for your time. And I, I yeah, I hope the book has even more success. And yeah, I look forward to seeing what you two are working on in the future. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a joy talking with you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Barbara and Gail. And I hope you picked up a few things. Like I said to them during that conversation, one of my favorite parts is talking about, you know, uh, teaching our kids about how to properly, you know, research things. So they don't fall into rabbit holes. Like everybody's really concerned about social media and all these other things, but I'm worried that my son, even though he's a very smart kid, you know, like what if he falls into some, you know, trap of just like believing the wrong things or he's, you know, starts putting misinformation in some papers at school. So I really enjoyed that part, but I hope you guys, you know, got interested in this book because like I said, if you're a psychology nerd like me, Barbara and Gail absolutely kill it with this book. It covered so many different angles that a lot of books don't cover. So I, I'm really glad that it's getting some of the attention it deserves, but I hope all of you, for any of you who have yet to read it, make sure you head down to the description. Like they said, it's available on audiobook now too. So check out the link down below and make sure you're following them. All right. But a few things before I let you go, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new here, make sure you're following the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. And if you want to help out the podcast in a way that doesn't cost you a penny, share this episode. If you think others can benefit from understanding the psychology of science denial, share this episode or any other episode that you like. And it's also helpful if you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. All this stuff really helps get the word out and all that. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Barbara and Gail for coming on to chat about their book. And yeah, thanks all of you for tuning in. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And I actually have a bonus episode coming for you on Sunday. So make sure that you stay tuned. All right. So have a good one. And I'll see you next time.